Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed Himself through Scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant Word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Good morning, church. Today we'll be reading from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and their fat portions. And the Lord had regarded for Abel and his offerings, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desire for you, but you must rule it over. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when the they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wandering on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word and how it's still good to the, to this day, how it's hidden in our hearts. And I just pray for whoever's bringing your word that you will put the words on their lips and in their heart that they want us to receive. Amen. may be seated. Well, we're continuing in our verse-by-verse study of Genesis, and that is exactly what we're going to do with this passage today. We're going to just walk through it uh, very simply, verse-by-verse. But just to catch you up on where we are in the story, beginning in Genesis 4, the first man and the first woman have been removed from the garden because of their sin. 
God's good creation, God's perfect, unstained, uncontaminated by sin creation has now been subjected to frustration because of the sin of the first man and the first woman. This sin, a willful choosing to reject the counsel and command of God so that they might do what is right in their own eyes. A willful choosing to reject the counsel of God and the command of God so that they might do what is right in their own eyes. It is the same temptation towards sin that we find in ourselves and in our world today. Their rebellion, was this not a familiar story? This, this story of their rebellion should be, would be, unimaginable for us. There's no way where we come up with this is the next chapter that happens in this story of creation. Were it not for its familiarity and also the prevalence of sin in our own world, where we see rebellion and rejection of God all around us, and not just around us, but fighting within us. And so as we come to this crossroads, there's a rather significant theological question that should be asked, which is what comes next? Are you kidding me? The almighty God of creation who has spoken universes into existence, who has made a perfect planet for these perfect people made in his image, they've now rebelled against him. Their their sin has been hostile against him. They have been removed from his presence. We should stop and say, what on earth is about to come next? Martin Luther, talking about this passage, said, this is the key issue in terms of biblical history that proves God is not like we ourselves. For we would have smashed human creatures to pieces and started all over again. That's what we would anticipate from the almighty, all-powerful God who has been rebelled against. That this is, not, this is not a rebellion that threatens his sovereignty or his throne in the least. He could disperse it immediately. And yet instead, what we find right from the beginning is God's promise of redemption. More specifically, the promise of a redeemer who was yet to come. If you remember back at the end of Genesis 3, verse 15, he said, I will put enmity, make you lifelong adversaries, opponents, enemies, between you, he's speaking to the the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring, serpent, and her offspring, mankind. He shall bruise your head, and you, serpent, shall bruise your head. His heel. Right from the beginning, we find this first hint of the gospel that there is one who is coming who is going to right this grievous, unimaginable wrong. And so, chapter 4, verse 1, look with me. It says, And now Adam knew his wife Eve. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Friends, consider with me what it must have been like to be that first man and that first woman and to have lost perfection. To have lost whatever intimacy with God looked like before the fall. What was it like for them to not only have lost that, every moment is now experiencing a different world, a broken world, a fallen world. And yet remembering, ringing in their minds God's promise, your offspring will fix this. There's one who's coming who will fix this. And now, as Adam watches as her belly grows, 
the, the first child, the first pregnancy, uh, we have so many babies popping up at our church right now. And I, I remember what it's like to be a young man, even though it, let's face it, that's how we all came into being, right? Like every, every person here was because your mom was pregnant and then gave birth to you. And yet there is a wonder and a miracle that accompanies being that young man watching this growth develop in his wife. What must that have been ringing in their ears? Your offspring will crush his head. This might be the Messiah. They don't even know the word Messiah yet, the chosen one. The, the one who God has anointed to do this task of fully crushing the head of the serpent. And when he is born, she names him Cain. In essence, saying, I've got him. Here he is. That, that's another translation for the name Cain. Here he is. Can, can you hear this promise ringing in their heads and their hearts? Everything is broken, but our offspring is going to fix us. Now they missed that that promise was of Christ who was far off, but yet to come. <coughs> their first son, they respond, here he is. This is it. This is going to fix it. But this child was not their savior. The biblical narrative does not give us a timeline in this story. We don't know how much time has passed between scenes, how much time passed between when they were expelled from the garden and when their first son was born. How much time has passed since their son was born when Cain fights and kills his brother Abel. We don't know any of those things. In fact, in this biblical narrative, many of the details are missing. Now, we're really familiar with this story, but many of the specific details, whether it be time or what was said or how it was said, are just missing. What was God's command to them? As they're bringing their offerings before the Lord, what had he commanded of them? We don't know. What did they know? What did they not know? We don't know that either. Some people have looked at this passage and said God is so unfair that he would accept Abel's offering and reject Cain's because Cain didn't know any better. Well, we don't get that from Scripture because we don't know what he knew and didn't know. What about the other children that were born to Adam and Eve? Did you know Adam and Eve had other children? We know that because in Genesis 4, verse 14, Cain says this. When God curses him, he says, whoever finds me, will kill me. Now think with me, if they didn't have other children, the whoever is mom and dad. If I run into mom and dad in the marketplace, mom's going to get me. Now some of you have felt like that, but it, that's not what it actually was. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 17, it says that Cain took a wife. Where did that come from? Well, it came from Adam and Eve having children. There is a long period of time that has passed. We, we don't know what that period of time is, it is somewhere between 20 years and 130 years. We know that from uh, chapter 5, verse 3, where Seth is born. Thank you. <laughs> it was just fun to watch it roll. Uh, Seth is born after Cain has killed his brother, and it says Adam was 130 years old. So it, we're somewhere within a 130-year time frame. Now, when you're thinking about a guy who's going to live 900 years, that doesn't sound like that long. But think in our time. Imagine the size of your family. Because some people are like, what, Cain married his sister? Like, are you kidding? Like, that's, that's bizarre and kind of gross, right? Anybody else think like that? The young brothers in here, like, no way. 
bachelor for life, right? Uh, so let me, give, let me give you an idea of what this 130-year time frame looks like. Imagine your family, starting with your whatever, great-great-grandparents living back in 1890. So 1890 to right now in 2020s. The amount of generations that they had, sons and daughters, and then within about 20 years, their sons and daughters, and within about 20 years, their sons and daughters, and within about 20 years, their sons and daughters. There is a multitude of people upon the earth that have all descended from Adam and Eve, but Cain doesn't have to marry his sister. Are you tracking with me? All right, just little details that are left out, but they're sort of implied by what we do have in the text. Look at verse 2. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. I, I just want to point out a couple things as we go through this. Work was part of God's good design and gift to mankind. Uh, sometimes we look at work as being part of the fall or part of the curse, but uh, we're actually going to see illustrated in this story that after the fall, after the curse, Cain loved his work. In fact, part of his curse was your work you're not going to be able to do anymore, and he says, it's too much for me. Genesis 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it before the fall. That God has ordained for us to do things productively within this world, and when we do them, we find joy and satisfaction even in a broken, sin-filled world. So the first time in this passage, we see children being born. Uh, for the first time in this passage, we see what it looks like for a family to live outside of the shelter and perfection of intimacy with God in a sin-stained world. For the first time, just simple things, we see jobs. That Cain had one job, he had one vocation, Abel had another. One was a keeper of sheep and animals, and one was a farmer who worked the ground. The text really does suggest that Cain loved his job. We're going to see that in verses 13 and 14. As he laments, I've been driven away today from the ground. I love my job. Now, most of you right now, if God drove you away from your job that you're going to get up and go to tomorrow, your number one complaint would be like, God, how am I going to provide for my family? Not, but Jesus, I love that factory. We're not praying like that, like begging God. <laughs> I just love working in sidewalls. Man, I can't even... Whoo! Yeah. All right, look at verse 3. In the course of time... Remember I, I told you we're not giving details on time in this. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought from the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, of the best portions of his flock. Kids, let me ask you a question in here. How many of you have ever made something like cookies or brownies with mom and dad? Let me see your hands. No, wait, 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 put them down. How many of you love eating cookies and brownies? Okay, yes, all right, good, we're all there. All right, so those of you who've, who've made them before, let me ask you a question. You, like, you made them, right? You remember, remember doing that? It's lots of fun, you make a mess, and then you get to eat it at the end. It's delightful. Who bought the ingredients for the cookies? Mom and dad, good, shout it out. Uh, who showed you how to make them? Whose stove did you cook them in? Whose house were you in when you cooked them? Whose pan did you put them in? And when you get all done, imagine if that kid who makes all those cookies goes, these are mine. You can't have any. 
sister, brother, they can't have any. If mom and dad try and get one, these are mine. That's not what you do, is it, kids? As soon as these cookies are done, now, now let's be honest. As soon as the cookies are done, you eat one, right? They're barely out of the oven. They're not safe to touch with human hands because they're so hot, and you eat one as fast as you can. What's the second thing you do? You take that cookie, especially if you were doing it with mom, and then you run into the next room, and you give dad a cookie, and you say, Dad, look what I made. It is perfectly natural that these offspring of Adam and Eve would look at the good gift that God has totally surrounded them with in creation and say, Father God, look what you have given us. Look what we have done with what you have given. This offering is not God being demanding and selfish. It is them rightly understanding that all of this was God's good gift. These were the gifts that God had given to them, and they are reflecting it back to him. That's what we do every time we take up an offering. We say, God, you gave me all of this. You gave me the house. You gave me the job. You gave me the strength to do the job. You gave me the family. You gave me the knowledge to know how to not spend all my money at Walmart when I go there. Right? Whatever it is in my life, God, all of this is a gift from you. And so I give back to say, Lord, you're my source. You're my strength. You are everything. It only makes sense that they would give back to God. The phrase that's used here when it says in the course of time is actually a Hebrew word that means the end of day, end of day. So at the end of the days, the end of the day, that's translated in the course of time. Uh, So think, we're not given the specifics of it, but think of harvest time. At the end of the days, when you have have done all the cultivating, all the growing, when you have uh, taken care of the flocks and they've matured, and it's either uh, harvest time or butcher time, that they would come before the Lord and say, God, look at the good that you have given us. And yet, here again, we're not told specifically what kind of offering this is. Look at verse 4. The Lord God had regard for Abel and his offering... But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. We're missing part of the story. We don't know what God had told them. We don't know what kind of offering they're offering unto the Lord. Is it a first fruits offering? As uh, we're going to see played out in Deuteronomy 26, where uh, from the first fruits of what grows in your field, bring that to the Lord and present it to remind yourself and to say back to God, all of this is a gift from you. I didn't do this. Those of you who've planted a garden, you can plant the seed. You cannot make it grow. You can water it, but you cannot make it grow. You cannot make it fruitful. God has engineered that into it. It's God who does that. We're just the recipients of that great blessing. One of the questions that a lot of people ask when they look at this, I remember as a kid reading this and asking the question, why? Why didn't God accept Cain's offering? I want to caution us because I've said a few times we're missing parts of this story, so we can't just make assumptions on the answer to why. Why did God ask for a specific offering? Why did he reject what Cain offered to him? Uh, knowing that there would be first fruits offering, Deuteronomy 26, that would be pointing back to this, that all that we have comes from God. And yet, Albert Moeller, in commenting on this passage, said this, The offerings of vegetation that we find throughout the Old Testament never 
dealt with sin. Never dealt with sin. It was always a reminder that every good thing comes from the Lord. Everything that we have is a gift from God, but it does not cover or deal with sin. Friends, when we take up an offering on a Sunday morning, we are reminding ourselves that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. We're reminding ourselves that every good and perfect gift that we have has come down from the Father of lights, that everything that we have is a gift. But listen, really careful, what you give in the offering on a Sunday morning never deals with your sin. It cannot. It's unable to do that. You can't give your way out of sin. There are still denominations who believe that if you give a certain amount of money, it will be able to uh, deal with your sin. One in particular, uh, you can buy your way out of purgatory through indulgences. The, The same thing that Martin Luther stood against 500 years ago still continues today. Our offerings never deal with sin. You can... Think about this. You can do all the right things. You can bring the right offering. You can show up to church every Sunday morning and be no closer to God because your heart's in the wrong place. Come on, teenagers. Am I telling the truth? Come on, you who used to be teenagers. Am I telling the truth? Here's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. The religious leaders who did all the right things at the right time, they they had the right offerings. They said the right things. They were always in the right place. And he says this, Matthew 15, 7, You hypocrites. It's a Greek word that's taken from uh, the theater, from acting, and it was you who put on a mask. That's what the word hypocrite means. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Friends, you can say all the right things, do all the right things, show up to church, and your heart is far from him. We're not told directly the state of Cain's heart. Uh, We're given uh, a glimpse into his emotions through a couple significant clues here. Number one is his facial expression. So, kids, let's do a little test here. A little facial expression exam. Uh, What is this curious person feeling? Let me give you some some clues. Happy, sad, surprised, fear, or anger. What do you think? Happy. Happy. All right, let's try the next one. Sad. Very sad. Let's try the next one. This is an actual picture from when John and Kara got married. She started coming down the aisle. Let's try the next one. Fear. And the last one. Angry. All of, all of John and Kara's kids are like, I've seen that one. Yes. <laughs> Look at your Bibles. Look at verse 5. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. It's interesting. It tells us this twice. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, here's the warning, kids. This is the coloring page memory verse for this week. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. It's against you. It wants to have you. But you must rule over it. 
All right, but before we think about that, let, let's stop and, and think about this. Don't miss the fact that God is speaking face-to-face with Cain. They've been expelled from the garden. We're used to thinking about, well, God used to talk with them when they were in the garden, but now they've been kicked out. Now they're far from God. No, God is having an intimate conversation face-to-face with Cain. We know that because God tells us what Cain's face looked like. There's a level of intimacy that Cain has with the living God. There's a closeness in proximity. And yet, think about it, a complete lack of real intimacy and trust. How do we know that? We know that because of what Cain immediately does. And still, God doesn't squash him. That blows my mind. What does God do? He talks with him. He reasons with him. We find this again and again in Scripture as God's people turn from him, as they reject him, as they rebel and do their own thing. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, God says to his rebellious people, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What does God say to Cain? Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Cain, if you just do the right thing, won't I accept you? Of course is the answer. Here's the problem. We're reading that. We have holes in our narrative. We don't know what the right thing was. And yet I want to make the argument that Cain did. See, God can't require something of us that is we're oblivious to. Now, Romans chapter 1 is going to say we're going to suppress the truth, that God reveals the truth to us and we suppress it. And people say all the time, I didn't know. I didn't know that's what God wanted. I didn't know that's what the Bible said. To that we reply, yes, you did. Or else God is unjust. Cain knew. Verse 7, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Friends, don't miss this. Cain was not a victim. He wasn't a victim of his sin. He wasn't a victim of his temptation. He wasn't a victim of his emotions. How many times do we hear that in our society today? Why did you do this terrible thing? Why did you say this terrible thing? Oh, my emotions. If you would have been there, you would know I had no control over what happened. And right from the beginning, God says that's not how it works. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you. Kids, did you notice on your coloring page? Its desire is to have you. He has him locked inside a jail. That's what sin wants to do to you. It wants to lock you up inside the jail, but you must rule over it. Rather than letting your sin, rather than letting your temptations, your emotions rule over you. Here's the command to Christians, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in faith. So the first clue to the condition of Cain's heart is his facial expressions. The second is that he completely disregards the counsel and the command of God. God says something super direct to him. God gives him a loving, fatherly warning. Man, don't do this. Don't let this happen. It is is right there wanting to come in and snatch you. You have to resist this. But look at verse 8. 
Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. This, again, is the most unimaginable thing. If we did not know this story, we would not see this coming. God's perfect creation of the perfect man and woman who experience paradise lost, and yet they still know God. God is still speaking with them. God is still intervening. We never see the first murder coming. Consider with me where Cain had just been. At least in the theological narrative we are given, he'd just been talking with God. That's the way the story is told. Now, we're not meant to take this as a chronological timeline exactly what we are meant to think is God warns him face to face, and the immediate after effect is he goes and lures his brother into a field and kills him. Rather than listening, while God is speaking, he is, by the way, we've done this, haven't we? Brooding over our sin. God is warning him out of love, out of compassion, and rather than listening to that loving call, He's brooding over his sin. He's brooding over his perceived wrong. God, you have been unjust and unfair to me. And the whole time, just working in his mind what he might do. What can I do in response to this? How can I get even? Again, we're not given the conversation that happens between Cain and Abel, just the devastating outcome. Consider again, there was at least a period of time where Adam and Eve thought Cain might very well be the Messiah. Might be the one who's coming as the offspring to crush the head of the serpent to fix this all. Now, a period of years have gone by. There's been other sons. There's been other daughters. Some of that initial thought probably has begun to slip away, and yet in one moment, two sons are robbed from them. Isn't it interesting that Cain, within the Christian world and outside in the secular world, has become emblematic for the greatness of sin? And his iconic words, am I my brother's keeper? Have been synonymous with evil and corruption. Oh, what disappointment that first family experienced. Hey, families in this room, families who have been faithful as mom and dad, in sharing the gospel with your children, in living a consistent, godly witness, and yet have not seen perfect results in your family, take heart. Salvation, Psalm 3, belongs to the Lord. So if you have a child who is not walking with the Lord, maybe even rejects the gospel, and you have been faithful, you stand in hope, not in your faithfulness, but in the God who saves the God who judges rightly. And for those of you who maybe, even as I say that, you say, yeah, but I haven't been faithful. I haven't been diligent. I want to call you to two things simultaneously. Number one, greater faithfulness. Greater diligence with the responsibility God has given you. And at the same time, consider who's the last person in this narrative who had a face-to-face -face confrontation with Cain to try and talk him out of his sin. It was God himself. 
that you lack the power in yourself to accomplish salvation for your children. Now, we should be more faithful and more diligent without ever thinking blasphemously for one second that we have the power of salvation in our actions or words. Are you tracking with me? Look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where's your brother Abel? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Fascinating. The, the last conversation that he had with God, God was warning him, and now he's sarcastic with God. That's reckless. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. I, I want to just point out some parallels here. This is the same question that God asked of Eve in the garden. Now, Adam dodges his responsibility and says, uh, the woman that you gave me, she's the one who gave me the fruit, and I took and ate it. And God does not absolve Adam, neither does the rest of Scripture, of his responsibility for sin. In fact, Scripture is going to tell us that through Adam, through one man, sin came to all, and by it, death came to all. And yet through the second Adam, the greater Adam, Christ, life comes to all that God has called to himself. And yet God looks Eve in the face and says, what is this that you have done? It was not because God didn't know. Any more than when God walks into the garden, he says, Adam, where are you? The same question he says, where is your brother? It's not that God didn't know. He wanted them to stop and face their sin eyeball to eyeball. There's no minimizing. There's no soft selling. I want you to look into what you have done, the damage that you have done, the consequences that you have brought upon yourself. No excuses, no evasions, no negotiation, no blame shifting. Feel the weight of your sin. That is not how our world thinks nowadays. We do everything that we can to keep people from feeling the weight and the consequences of their sin. And that, my friends, is dangerous. It is dangerous to them, and it is actually dangerous to our world and society. There's something that is revealed in the nature and character of God right here in these first verses. And it is one of the attributes of God called the justice of God. God says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Now here's what we do in our society today. We take the sins that we are most comfortable with, are, are most politically and socially acceptable, and we go, well, God gets it. God knows you're human. He knows you're struggling. It's fine. You know, God's a God of love. And, and so the most loving thing that God could do is never make you feel bad about your sin. In fact, he's just going to say, it's fine, I love you, let's let it go. Friends, if God did that in this situation, it would be unjust. There is no grieving parents on this earth who would look in the face of their accused and say, let's just let it, let's let it slide. Right from the beginning, that would have been injustice in God. And God says, no, his blood still cries out for justice. His righteousness still demands holiness and righteousness of us. Hebrews 11 verse 4 says, By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did, and by faith 
He was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. That first murder still cries out before God for justice to be served. Now that does not diminish that God is a God of love, but every single sin will be paid for in blood, either your blood or Christ's blood. And friends, the choice is up to you. Here's our hope. Our hope is not that we get attached to some, like one of these justice causes, a social justice cause. Yes, the blood cries out from the ground. And so uh, our feeling of self-righteousness is we go and make a sign and we join a protest and we march around and it's who can shout the loudest. No, here is our hope. Hebrews 12, 24. We look to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks, catch this, a better word than the blood of Abel. He said the blood of Abel is still crying out for justice before the throne of God, and yet Christ's blood says it is paid in full for those who have been washed by his blood, have been redeemed by his blood. Now, this does not mean we get a free pass in this world. Oh, God has forgiven me, and therefore society must forgive me. No, there are consequences to our sin. We just talked about a second ago as parents and grandparents, sometimes we have failed to be diligent. We have failed to be faithful in raising our kids. God is gracious. And yet you may reap the consequences that, of that for the next generation or two. Look at verse 11. And as we're looking at it, remember Cain's love for the ground. He's finding his identity in what he does, his happiness in what he does. Verse 11, and now you are cursed from the ground. This is the first time that we find a person being cursed. As God speaks judgment over Adam and Eve, God says to Adam, the ground is cursed because of you. But now God looks Cain in the eyes and says, you are cursed from the ground which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer. I remember as a kid, there was a TV show. It, it wasn't like the movies. It was about a man, a scientist, a wanderer named David Banner. He was exposed to gamma radiation. Kids, stay away from gamma radiation. Please, it changed him. He became angry. In fact, he would get so angry that his eyes would turn green, his body would turn green. He became a monster. So he wandered from town to town. And this anger monster would burst out and he would have to leave again, just hoping no one would discover the secret sin that leaked lurked within him. For those of you who are 40 and over, you're welcome. For those of you who are under, we're just leaving you out. That's the story of Cain. This, this person who has been surrounded by friends and family and intimacy with God is now expelled from all of that. He can no longer do what he finds joy and fulfillment in doing. And he is crushed and devastated. Look at verse 13. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Now, catch this. 
He doesn't say, for I have sinned. He doesn't say, what I did was evil and unimaginable. I must repent from this. Oh God, give me the gift of repentance. There's none of that. It's, I don't like the consequences. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. I'm not concerned with the consequences of my sin in what I have done that would lead to repentance. I just don't like the implications for me. Friends, this is not repentance. It's not repentance in Cain, and it's not repentance in us when we're only moved by the consequences that we have to reap and not the sin that we have done. And notice that God is not motivated by what makes him feel bad or good at all. John Calvin points out here that even though rightly caught and convicted in their crimes, the reprobate refuses repentance and instead rails that God is unjust or too severe. That's what Cain says. He doesn't say, God, you have judged rightly because of the unimaginable wickedness of my actions. No, he says, God, you're being too mean to me. Times have not changed. Verse 15, then the Lord said to him, not so. Not so, this is not unjust, but not so that anyone who finds me will kill me. Everyone's going to hate me now. That's Cain's argument. God says, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. We're not told what that is. Lest anyone who found him should attack him. This is a big enough mark that you can see coming. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. These are, these are shocking words. This isn't Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden. This is someone going away for the first time. There's a lot of firsts in this passage from the presence of the Lord. And settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Consider, though, God still preserves him. God still does not crush him. Now, I'm not sure. In reading this passage, and we're not given this, I'm not sure if God's marking him and telling all the world you cannot touch him is God's grace towards him or God's judgment towards him or both. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we do know later on in Scripture it's going to say, if you shed a man's blood, then by a man's hand shall your blood be shed. Like, it's the Bible that ordained the death penalty. So is God being gracious in forestalling that, or is God increasing the judgment that said, I want you to live with this every day of your life as misery? Cue sad music again. Are you tracking with me? We're not told which one it is. Either way, it's going to be a long time. Adam lived, we think about, man, i got to carry this the rest of my life. Adam lived 900-some years. We're not told how long Cain lived. What if it was half that long? I want you to bear this burden for the next 500 years. That's judgment. This is the first time, as well, that God doesn't cover the sin. There's no second chance. There's no, we can fix this, we can get this right. We, we found when Adam and Eve sinned, 
No actual words of repentance are recorded from Adam in Scripture, and yet God covers them with the first sacrifice with the skins of animals, and that's not offered to Cain. I'm going to say that one more time. God's covering for sin is not offered to Cain. Was Cain born into the right family who knew God and walked with God? Oh, the answer is yes. Was that a guarantee that he would walk under the blessing and protection of God? The answer is no. When he sinned, did he deserve a second chance? The answer is no. For everyone who steps into eternity rejecting God's salvation, that's their story. I would love to do what we so often do in churches and church services, which is we find a a creative way at the end to twist it towards yes, but. Yes, but everything's going to work out good for you. Yeah, yeah, there was was a hard time here, but everything's going to work out good for you. As teaching verse by verse, expositionally through the Bible, here's where this passage leaves us. And Cain walked away from the presence of the Lord. Friends, for those who choose to reject the truth of God's word and the offer of God's salvation, this is the only story that lays in front of them. Worship team, would you come on up? As they come, I want you to grab your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. I want you to read this with me. We are going to have it on the screen, and if you have a Bible in this room, I would ask you not to look at the screen, but at your Bible. And here's the reason. These are hard words. You'd better be convinced that these are God's words and not my words that I put on the screen, but God's words that he recorded in his perfect, unchanging word. Especially in this time and this generation where this is the least popular message on the planet. I like what they're doing. Can we just stand together as we read this? And yet, I'm struck by something else. We'd better read this really humbly. We dare not stand in judgment over anybody in this, in condemnation over anybody in this, because apart from the grace of God, this is us. Oh, if you don't know the salvation of Christ in this room today, I beg you, stop what you're doing and listen. Hear the warning and hear the offer of salvation. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Therefore, God has given them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. I beg you, if you hear my voice, don't hear mine. Hear his. Do not harden your your heart today, but come to his voice. Repent. Stop trusting in yourself and trusting Christ. Don't carry the weight of your sin and do like Cain and walk away from the presence of the Lord. Oh, instead, believe in your heart as we sing together the words of the hymn writer that said, the bliss of this glorious thought that my horrible, wicked, unimaginable sin that stains every part of me, contains, uh, con- contaminates every part of me, not just a little bit of it, not just in measure, not just in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Friends, that offer is yours today if you will come. you just bow your heads with me? God, I pray the weight of our sin would settle upon us. I pray we would hear the echo of your voice that sounds like many thundering waters, the scripture tells us, saying, what have you done? And that we wouldn't feel the condemnation of it. We would feel the weight of all of that sin hidden, lurking inside of us. And yet, what a glorious, blissful thought that you have not asked us to give an offering to deal with our sin. You haven't asked us to do better, to live a perfect life, to deal with our sin. You have taken the totality of that sin and you have nailed it to Christ upon the cross and we bear it no more. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who you have already adopted into your family who are struggling this morning. I pray that they would again throw themselves on the weight of Christ on the cross. There is freedom from that burden. Lord, I pray for those who are lugging around unrepentant sin in this room. Oh God, would you meet them and deal with them right now? Not because you hate them, not because you are expelling them from your presence, but because of your great love that calls them into the family and into fellowship. Lord, for those in this room who do not know you, who do not love you, who are not serving you, would you love them so much that you don't let them go one more minute in that state? I'm not praying you'd make them smart enough or good enough. I'm praying, oh God, would you violate their free will? Would you move all over them with your spirit, convict their heart, give them faith, and save them? You alone are the God who saves. We have no power in ourselves. We just come up with all the wrong answers. And so we throw ourselves upon your mercy, oh God. We come humbly before the throne of grace. Would you just stand for just a second between you and God? There's no fancy music. There's no fancy altar call. It's just you and the living God right now.
If that's you in this room, if as we have just spent a moment before the Lord, if you say, I have been far from him, I have carried sin in my heart, I've made excuses for it, I have run from it, and yet I just put it up before the throne of grace. Or if you're in this room and you say, I haven't even trusted in Christ before, but I'm, I'm putting my hope and trust in him right now, would you just put your hand up in the air? Look around. Not with eyes closed. Look around. If there's somebody who is standing next to you with their hand in the air, as we sing, before you come to the table, let's go pray with them. Let's be the body of Christ who comes and just surrounds them. Whether it is, God, I've been struggling with this for a long time. Friends, you don't have to struggle alone. This is family. Whether it's those who said, I've never been there before. Friends, you don't have to walk alone. You're part of a family. Let's just do that right now. If you saw somebody who had their hand up in the air, let's move towards them. I'm not going to lead it from the front, just right where you are. Let's just surround them, pray for them right there. Here's the promise of God, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. That even before we call on him, he's already answered. He's chosen you in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's why Paul says, For I received what I received from the Lord, I delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, those of you who just cried out to the Lord, he heard you. We're going we're gonna to physically proclaim that as we now come to the table of the Lord. Uh, for the, all those of you who are believers, come and take the bread and say, His body has paid in full what mine could not. His blood has paid the debt that my blood, my sin, owed. So as we sing, if you're a believer, come to the table. Take the elements, and then together as we sing, we will take them in just a minute. So as the worship team leads us, would you just start from the front, come and take the elements back to your seats, and then we'll take them together. guys 
church.